We're only three chapters in, and already Deuteronomy is proving to be a fascinating read. The Deuteronomist continues to recount the adventures of the Israelites, seemingly unaware that other people have written much of this down already, some of it differently. Contradictions in the Bible make rich pickings for atheists, and those of a religious bent have their work cut out to try and find workarounds for all the plot holes. The bigger question is whether these inconsistencies sink the ship, so to speak. The purpose of the three speeches recounted in Deuteronomy was to encourage and motivate the troops before the succession of battles that needed to be fought in order to settle the land which the Israelites believed God had promised their ancestors he would give to them as a homeland, the promised land. However, the book appears to have been written down much later on in the Jews' history, separately from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. The fact remains that there was a sudden population increase in Canaan during the Iron Age, from around 1175 to 1000 BC. Numbers went up by 700%, which can't be put down to natural growth and so must have involved an influx of new settlers. Stories of how the land was settled may well have survived the centuries until they were finally written down by Levite scribes, possibly in the 7th century BC, during the religious reforms of Judah's pious king, Josiah. Deuteronomy is fabulously biased, with many of the less flattering moments in Israel's history airbrushed out. In fact, I think Deuteronomy is one of my favourite books in the Bible. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 44, The All-Consuming Fire. Well, here we are, well on our way through the last book of the Pentateuch as the Bible's first five books are known. These are the books of the law where Israel is told how its people should behave and what the appropriate way is to worship their God. I'm your guide through the Bible you'll be relieved to know that I won't be telling you what to believe, simply what other people believe. The Bible I refer to is Zondervan's NIV UK edition study Bible, and any weights and measures are imperial, but I'll pop the metric conversions in the show notes. Right, back to the gigantic crowd by the river, where Moses is in full flow. The recap continues as Moses describes the division of land among Israel's tribes, the conquest of Sihon and Og, and the arrival at the banks of the River Jordan. Moses announces that he allocated land east of the Jordan to the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, naming the tribal leaders and detailing the geographic borders of their new territory. He fails to mention that these tribes came to him specifically to ask for this land and promised to march along with all the other tribes to conquer the land west of the Jordan. In this account, it comes across as if it were Moses who ordered them to fight alongside everyone else before returning east to rejoin their families. In the book of Numbers, the tribes volunteer their services. Also in the book of Numbers, Moses simply commissions Joshua to be Israel's next leader. Here, in Deuteronomy, he elaborates on how God promised to make the rest of the conquest as easy as the battles against Sihon and Og. God himself will fight for you, he claims he told his successor. There is more new material. Moses shares how he pleaded with God to let him enter the promised land with everyone else. 
He describes everything miraculous that has happened so far as God beginning to show his power and greatness, suggesting that he would love to personally stick around to see how the rest of the story plays out. However, he explains that God was angry with him, omitting the details why, but adding in God's request to stop pestering him about this. Instead, Moses remembers how God ordered him to climb Mount Pisgah. In Numbers, it is just referred to as a mountain, and to look north, west, south and east, as that is the only way he will glimpse the land beyond the Jordan for himself. Pisgah means summit and may refer to the cluster of hilltops along the western edge of the Transjordanian Plateau, which include Mount Nebo. Moses is to encourage Joshua and build up the spiritual strength of the new commander who will lead Israel across the River Jordan to finally take ownership of the land of milk and honey. This, he tells Israel, is how they came to be camped here at Beth Peor, on the opposite side of the River Jordan to the Canaanite city of Jericho. We've already pointed out that Deuteronomy is really just three sermons or speeches delivered by Moses to prep the Israelites for their assault on Canaan. The first of these concludes with Moses about to list the laws which he first shared with everyone's parents four decades earlier. Almost none of the surviving Israelites were alive to hear the first telling of the law by Moses at Mount Sinai, and so a second showing is vital before the people can take possession of their new home. Moses orders them neither to add nor to take away anything from the law. The sense is that everything is primed for harmonious and respectful life to succeed if the Israelites just stick to the programme. Moses reminds his listeners of the plague that destroyed their compatriots who were seduced by Midian's gods and women and tells them that they are only alive today because they held fast to their belief in God. He adds that they are to follow God's rules as doing this will show all other nations how discerning and wise they are. It will also impress on these foreign powers that they are the only nation on earth whose God is so visible and accessible and which has such a comprehensive legal system. The Israelites are to ensure that they don't forget any of God's laws and must teach them to their children and grandchildren. Moses asks his people to remember the day when they stood before God at Mount Sinai, repeatedly referred to as Mount Horeb here in Deuteronomy. It's uncertain why the mountain is so often referred to as Horeb. 16th century Protestant reformer John Calvin suggested that the eastern side of the mountain is Sinai, while the western side is Horeb. Moses is clearly not expecting anyone to remember this. Many weren't born, and the rest were children when the Israelites camped at the foot of this mountain. Instead, Moses is perhaps asking his listeners to be mindful of what was said at that time. According to Moses, God asked him to gather the people so that they could be awed by him, engendering such lifelong reverence among them that they would teach his ways to their children, the current generation who Moses is addressing. Moses describes how the people gathered as close as they could to the mountain, which was engulfed in fire and dense cloud, and heard God's disembodied voice utter the Ten Commandments. He tells them how these laws were inscribed on two stone tablets, and that he taught them other laws too, all of which they are to follow as they enter the land across the Jordan. 
It's now time for the second law giving to get properly underway. But first, the people need to be reminded of how special they are to God. Moses points out that God assumed no physical form at Mount Sinai, which is why his listeners are to abstain from making and worshipping any idol that represents a living creature, nor are they to worship any astronomical body. He describes how God brought them out of the iron-smelting furnace that was Egypt to become his own personal nation. Iron-smelting in the Near East has been traced back to around 2000 BC. Furnaces were simple clay chimneys on which metal ore was placed on a bed of burning charcoal, with draughts of air being pumped through pipes. The mention of iron helps date the book of Deuteronomy to the Iron Age, despite it describing events that are believed to have taken place in the late Bronze Age. Moses reminds his listeners that, because of them, he won't be crossing over with them into Canaan. This is a little barbed. At the time of the flashpoint at Meribah, Moses was angry with the people for demanding water, but his reaction to this was his choice, and his words here suggest that he is failing to own his own behaviour. It wasn't the people who blew his chances of entering the land of milk and honey, It was his claim that he and Aaron produced the miraculous flow of water from a dry rock, not God. The Israelites are about to enter the land which God has given them as their inheritance, Moses tells them. And while he will die here on this side of the Jordan, the land to the west will be their new home. They must not forget the promises made to them by God or build idols, he says, as God is jealous and his jealousy will burn them like an all-consuming fire. This isn't a temporary ruling either. These laws appear to be in place for all time. So, should the people's children or grandchildren decide to flip back into idol worship, they will still be held accountable. God will be angry and Moses invokes the skies and the land as his witnesses that he is warning them right now that they will not survive. God will scatter them among Israel's neighbouring countries and only a few of them will make it through. As exiles, the people will be forced to worship dumb idols made of wood and stone who can neither hear, see nor smell whilst wistfully seeking God with all their heart and soul. It's a beautifully tragic and poetic image shared with the sole purpose of making his audience resolve to stick to the programme and keep God front of mind. When these things happen, and they inevitably will, Moses tells his listeners, they will eventually return to the fold. God is faithful, he assures them. He will neither destroy nor abandon them, nor will he forget the solemn and binding promises which he made to them. Moses asks if there has ever been anything as amazing since the creation of the world as God speaking out of fire on a mountain. Has God ever taken one nation out of another miraculously with, quote, mighty hand and outstretched arm and great and awesome deeds, like he did with Israel in Egypt? Moses tells his people that God did all these things to demonstrate that he really was God, and uniquely so. This is why his voice boomed from the skies while on earth his fire blazed on the summit of Sinai. The evacuation from Egypt was masterminded by God because he loved his people, they are told. And this is why he will drive out other nations from the land which he has given to them to live in in perpetuity. 
it's clear that Moses wants his people to be aware of how unique, special and powerful God is and that they should not take this for granted. In his opinion, which is the general opinion of the whole Bible, it is only by following God's laws that people can be sure that what they are doing is pleasing to him and that they live in a way that guarantees a long and prosperous life in their new land. Realising that the tribes who settle on this side of the Jordan may not be able to access the cities of refuge that will lie west of the river, Moses sets aside three towns where anyone from the tribes of Reuben, Gad and Manasseh who kills someone by accident can go to ground until they can face trial. With a suitably pompous flourish, the Deuteronomist announces that these are the stipulations, laws and decrees first given by Moses when he led the people out of Egypt. They are now given here at Beth Peor in the land taken from the two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, whose land extended from the rim of the Arnon Gorge to Mount Hebron, encompassing the Arabah as far as the Dead Sea. Moses encourages his listeners not just to hear the laws and decrees, but to learn them and follow them. God didn't make a solemn promise to their ancestors, he said. He made it with them. They are God's chosen people. They are the ones who God spoke to out of the fire on Sinai, using him as a middleman, as they were too afraid to approach the mountain. The Israelites leader recites the Ten Commandments, describing the loud voice with which God gave the originals and how he wrote them in stone. It is in the book of Deuteronomy that the God of Israel is singled out from any other deity because of one fundamental difference in his character. Moses tells his listeners of the fear and wonder with which they saw the fire on the mountain and heard God's voice, describing it as the voice of the living God, as well as the awe inspired in them that a human could talk to God and not die. The Israelites who are being corralled through the desert by Moses will all have been exposed to the multiple gods of Egypt and all the nations which they encounter on their journey have their favourite deities. The people have already learned of the consequences of flirtation with other gods the hard way after trying out the deities of Moab and Midian. But the general thrust of the Bible is that any god or idol that has been made by human hands must be less powerful than the human who made it. Moses reminds his people that their parents actually witnessed God giving the law on Mount Sinai and they have seen him in the pillars of cloud and fire. To Moses, God is not a remote or make-believe deity. He is real. In his book that appears later in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah asks, Can the pot say to the potter, You know nothing? The living God suggests that in contrast to idols made of wood and stone, God is not only sentient, but active and involved in the lives of his people. Just as Tolkien had one ring to rule them all, God appears to have one commandment that towers above all the others. Moses remembers how the people feared that they would be consumed by the fire on the mountain or would die if they heard God continue to speak within their earshot and how they ordered him to share whatever God told them, promising to obey every word before scattering to a safe distance. Moses relives the experience of Mount Sinai where God shared his hope that his people really would live up to their promises so that they and their children will live happily ever after. 
He remembers God ordering him to send the Israelites back to their tents while he remained on the mountain to be briefed on God's laws and reiterates that these are the rules which need to be followed in order for them to thrive in their new homeland. Loving and obeying God is never far from the surface of the book of Deuteronomy and Moses promises the younger Israelites who were not born when their parents first evacuated Egypt that the rewards of following God's commands will be long life and prosperity when they eventually settle in Canaan. He then gives an instruction that is seen as central to Judaism, Christianity and Islam and one of the most powerful proclamations in the entire Bible. Hear, O Israel, he says portentously, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The sense is that God is the only God, that he is unique and that the multiple gods worshipped back in Egypt and here by the pagan tribes in Canaan are irrelevant. He continues, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Known in biblical circles as the Shema, which is Hebrew for here, this phrase is central to worshipping God and conveys the sense of putting everything into showing God that he is worthy of love, respect and awe. Jesus later adds to the command. He urges believers to love with all their heart, soul, strength and mind. In the intervening years, people have clearly come to appreciate that it is the brain and not the heart that controls a person's behaviour. So important is this command that it is not to be written on stone tablets, but is to be told to children, spoken about at home and discussed during journeys. It is to be mulled over in bed at night and on waking up in the morning and should be tied to people's hands and worn on their foreheads. It should be attached to the door frames of their houses and on the gates of their cities. Some Jews even go so far as carrying the words with them at all times in phylacteries and attach them physically to the door frames in mezuzot. Looking like a GoPro from the ancient world, the phylactery or tefillin is a small leather box worn by devout male Jews on their foreheads or around their upper arms. Phylacteries contain four pieces of scripture, two from chapter 13 of the book of Exodus, which describes the dedication of firstborn people and animals and lays out the structure of the Passover, and two from here in Deuteronomy, which quote the Shema and which advocate the wearing of scripture on foreheads and nailing it to the doorframes of houses. A mezuzah, plural mezuzot, is a piece of inscribed parchment enclosed in a case and attached to a doorpost. The writing on the parchment is the Shema, which is copied out in indelible ink by a specialist scribe before being placed in its container and fixed to the door. Some Jews are more relaxed about what goes into a mezuzah, allowing any text from the first five books of the Bible. My Jewish grandmother had a mezuzah on the door of her flat in an apartment block in North London. Jesus sees the command to wear scripture as a purely metaphorical one and later criticises the use of phylacteries by overzealous Jewish leaders who feel the need to display their piety so publicly. Still, it's a tradition which has survived into the 21st century and which quite literally takes the letter of the law and runs with it. Back at Beth Peor, the people are told that when they eventually arrive in a land whose cities they did not build and which are filled with food they did not produce, wells they did not dig and vineyards they did not plant, this verse means that they are not to forget the God who brought their forefathers out of a wretched life as enslaved construction workers in Egypt.
And so, the Jews now know that God is a living God, where other gods are just inanimate wood, metal or stone. They also have their mantra for life, the Shema. They know they are to love God with all their heart, soul and strength, but they still have a huge ordeal ahead of them. Conquest is not a given and appears to be dependent on them keeping the laws which Moses is now teaching them. If they get it right, they will be like hornets delivering a devastating sting to the pagans who currently live in Canaan. If they get it wrong, they will be exiled to distant nations, far from any homeland and utterly abandoned by God. The stakes are high and Moses knows it. But will the younger generation of Israelites take him seriously or will his words fail to land? Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please feel free to share any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com. That's Holy Bible spelt W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. Music